Hello. Well, this episode is part three of my conversation with David Keane from Solve My Claim. In it, David's actually going to help us understand some of the specific terminology in your insurance policy and also how to protect yourself when you're making an insurance claim. Now, if you haven't listened to part one or part two, it's worthwhile going and doing that. So pause this podcast and head back to listen to those parts now and we'll be here when you get back. Otherwise, let's dive into part three now. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals, and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire-prone areas, and more generally, designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews as well as get a copy of the full transcripts plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. Now, you've heard me talk a little bit about this in the past uh, two episodes, and you may have heard me talk about it before inside Undercover Architect. In November 2008, my husband and I were living in The Gap in Brisbane, and our home was damaged as part of uh, the gap storms that went through. Really freak storm, really strange storm that just basically affected and impacted houses in a very kind of unique little pathway. You could see how it had actually tracked its way through the suburb. It's a suburb in the west of Brisbane, about 10 kilometres from the CBD. And our home didn't suffer anywhere near the amount of damage that some homes did. Some homes were completely torn apart by that storm. Uh, For us, we had a big silky oak tree that was in our backyard. It actually fell on our roof and it cracked the roof open. Now, I remember at the time I was about four months pregnant with our second bub. Our eldest was about 17 months old. We were on our way home as we could see the skies getting blacker and blacker and we thought we'd better get home and and make sure everything's okay, make sure our dog's okay, all that kind of stuff. And we literally arrived home just as the storm started to sweep through and it was... It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was so ferocious Um, and... I remember standing in the hallway, uh, it, was a, it was a double brick home with single brick internal walls and the hallway basically had two rooms sitting either side of it and um, I remember standing in the hallway with my son, holding my son, he had his legs wrapped around my waist and his arms around my neck and just trying to figure out where the safest place in the house was to stand and looking out the windows, looking through sort of through a doorway out the windows to the outside of the house and seeing the rain just attacking the home horizontally. It was extraordinary. And we then, of course, heard 
uh, an almighty crack at the other end of the house, which was the silky oak landing um, on the roof over the top of our bedroom and another bedroom that was down the back of the house. It literally sort of hit the ridge line of, of the roof. And, you know, water was pouring through the heads of all the windows. Then water started coming in through that hole that the silky oak had created. And it was pouring, um, the hole basically was above our bed. So it was pouring through where there was a ceiling fan and a light all over the bed and the bed linen and the mattress and then through the floorboards and into the garage that was sitting below the house. And the garage actually, this house sort of sat into a hillside. So the garage sat sort of half the height of the garage was below ground and the other half was above ground. And then the house obviously sat above that. And below ground, the back wall of the garage was concrete block work. And then from the ground line up was brickwork and water was pouring through the gap between like forcing its way through the mortar between the blockwork and the brickwork. It was just, it, yeah, like I said, it was like unlike anything I'd experienced. And, you know, we had the storms and um, I think it was a fair few days before Energex could even get to the house to try and connect power back. Power lines had come down everywhere. There were trees pretty much covering every road. They kind of had to cut their way in. We were able to clear a pathway out so that we could... Um, leave the house for a while because of course we had no power and I remember um, going to get the neighbour we were going to the shops and the neighbour who was ex-army said can you just get me a few tins of baked beans (laughs) and he basically sent his family away and stayed at the house for the next few days camping out and uh, eating cold baked beans straight out of the tin so we um, we went with our kids and stayed at some friends place while we waited for power to get hooked back up But um, we came back and another storm came through and that storm flooded the house. And what happened was, of course, the ground was just far too sodden to take any more water and our backyard just filled up like a pool and the water flowed in underneath the sliding door tracks. It was, yeah, there was nothing we could do about it. And um, so anything that kind of hadn't got wet before got wet now. Fortunately, the floors were largely concrete. We'd been mid-renovation and we'd been we'd pulled up all the cork and the carpet and had been grinding back the slab and polishing the slab and then the rest of the floors were timber floorboards where it sat over the top of the garage and uh it was really interesting the insurance assessors the insurance company basically sent out two assessors one to to look at the contents damage and one to look at the house damage and then they also sent out a structural engineer to do a structural assessment of the damage because of the way the tree had hit the um, the, the ridge line, we were worried that there was structural damage to the central sort of spine brickwork wall that ran through the house. And then they presented what they proposed was going to be their settlement of their claim. And I remember looking at it and just thinking, is this a joke? Have they left, like, is this only one part? Is this the home insurance claim? And then we're going to get the settle, the settlement of the contents as well. But when we discovered it was everything, we just couldn't believe it. And it then ensued, of course, a 13-month battle um, with our insurer debating what was flood damage, what was water damage, and what was damage made by a storm-created opening. Finally, after going through that whole process, the ombudsman actually ordered them to settle for just over five times what they'd initially offered us. It was the difference between about $20,000 and about $100,000. And the the amount that the ombudsman ordered them to pay was actually it was it truly reflected the cost of the damage and the cost of the repair Uh, you know as I said we'd been mid-renovation and we had a baby on the way and we only had one bedroom that was livable after the storms so we um, had to keep 
basically working on the house and funding it ourselves and just keeping keeping faith that the work that we were doing with the insurance claim was going to actually be able to compensate us in some way, shape or form. But we weren't ever entirely sure whether that was going to happen. And so, um, you know, I remember getting that claim and being incredibly relieved that we were going to be able to kind of recover in some way financially. We were incredibly fortunate during that process. We found a retired uh, engineer who really helped us navigate our submission to the Ombudsman. And he also provided forensic structural advice that contradicted the report that had been done by the insurance company's structural engineer. But the stress of that whole experience, we hadn't anticipated it was going to take 13 months, um, you know, and it was beyond anything um, that I'd experienced as well. And we really felt that every step of the process was an attempt to wear us down and just to, to for us to settle for what we were being offered. Like everything that the insurance companies were doing was just about us basically giving up and backing down and saying, yep, okay, we've had enough. We'll take what you're offering. And, uh, f- you know, doesn't always work in our advantage, my, but my husband and I are both very, very stubborn and um, very tenacious and uh, we would seem to alternate not wanting to back down you know whoever one of us would just be at breaking point and say no I can't do it anymore Um, and and the other one would say no no we've got to keep fighting we ended up with you know documents after documents folders that were you know inches thick um, tables and schedules of costs and items that were damaged and quotes and all sorts of things in order to mount our argument um, to the insurance company and, and their underwriter and then to the ombudsman and we just kept going and going and I suppose, like I said, I was incredibly relieved when the settlement finally came through and we knew that we were able to obviously finish off all the repairs and do all of those things. We didn't have any, <laughs> I remember for, for it took us, uh, I think, 14 months from the date of the storm to repair that ceiling fan in our ceiling and get electrical light in the ceiling of our bedroom. My husband and I um, basically used torchlight in <laughs> bedroom that entire time Um, uh, because we just prioritized everything else for the kids and for the living parts of the house so but the other the other interesting thing was for years and years after my hubby would and I would actually go into battle stations mode anytime a storm was approaching Um, you know we lived in that house and then eventually sold it once we finished all the work and and uh, repair work and renovation work and we've lived in several properties since that home and every time a storm would come we'd just have a particular way of kind of uh I suppose just going into battle stations that's the only way I can describe it of making sure that we're all okay and the house was okay and it's only been since we've moved into this property on the Byron in the Byron hinterland um where we've moved to about six years ago and where it's that's changed for us and it wasn't until I sort of got I suppose, some awareness around it that I realised how much it had changed. Here, the difference when a, a when rains or a storm is coming is that, you know, rains here mean that our tanks get filled, that the paddocks get watered. You know, storms are really great for encouraging grass growth, um, you know, which means cows get fed. Like it's – there's this whole kind of on-flow impact for – pardon the pun – for what rains and storms actually mean that has a positive, you know, light on it and – and it's only since that perspective shift has been able to happen for, I know for me personally, that we don't have this, well, I don't have the same, you know, anxiety when a storm comes. And it's, 
yeah, it's been really interesting to see. And I think that um, that whole experience, uh, you know, in hindsight, I when I met David uh, from Solve My Claim, David Kane, I just knew that the fact that, that, that Solve My Claim exists means that I suspect you know, I know that insurance claims, particularly when you're being offered far less than what you're entitled to, uh, are going to be stressful. But to have somebody in your corner helping you navigate that in the in a similar way to the, you know, the structural engineer that worked with us was so essential in us being able to know how to do that properly and be able, you know, we would, I, I seriously doubt we would have got well, the final sediment that we did if we hadn't known how to navigate it according to the terminology, policy definitions, and to mount that argument that then satisfied and ticked all the boxes that the ombudsman needed to be able to reverse the the settlement. So, you know, David Keane actually started Solve My Claim in 2014 after realising that people in this situation often have nowhere to turn. And for David, you know, this is really about levelling the playing field. And you know at Undercover Architect, we're all about levelling the playing field. And for David, this is really about also providing social justice at times when people really, really need it. Now, David's worked inside the insurance industry for so many years and he got really fed up with just seeing how unfairly it handled people's claims and then what that would mean for the long-term livelihood and lifestyle of those impacted. And it is an industry that's full of jargon, full of specific processes. It can be really unnerving for anyone who's tackling it for the first time, uh, especially when you've lost your entire home and your belongings. And, you know, you getting it right is the difference between you being able to recover financially or not. Now, Solve My Claim provides support and fairness for those that are struggling with their insurance claims and they use their knowledge of how insurance policies actually work to be able to argue for those making their claims. And they've achieved more than $35 million worth of increased claim settlements in the past three years alone. That's $35 million that would have been left on the table otherwise, left in the coffers of insurance companies. You know, we talk in, in the interviews and if you've been listening to part one and part two, This isn't about making insurance companies evil. This isn't about making insurance evil generally. This isn't uh, about making them out to be crooks or anything like that. I think that just what has happened with the economics of our time where you have public companies that, that have clients paying basically supplying their revenue. So you have, you know, insurance companies where the client is the homeowner in a home insurance policy, paying their policy payments and basically supplying the revenue to the company. But the company is ultimately, I suppose, in the hierarchy of accountability, is more accountable to shareholders than to their individual clients. And when a company is required to make a profit in order to be attractive to shareholders, to continue to grow its bottom line overall and have greater market worth and market value, then that's a model that's going to mean that for that there's certain things required to to navigate that system and the system yeah i you know i think that it's it's clear that there's something challenging and that that needs attention in the way the system currently works what i love about david and solve my claim is that they're helping people navigate the system 
in a way that then still protects their rights and gives them access to the support and the know-how that they need um, if they're having difficulties. Now, not everybody has difficulties with their insurance claims. Some insurance companies do this, you know, do handle this very well. You know, what was interesting for us is that after we went through this process with our insurer, um, we terminated our policy and we'd been paying attention during the 13 months that we'd been battling them to see who was actually taking care of their customers. You know, where were tarps disappearing off houses quickly? Where were roofs getting repaired quickly? Who were those main insurers that were actually doing doing the right thing by their customers? And so we then um, investigated getting insurance with those people. And ever since then, whenever we've investigated having to, you know, of course, living on an acreage property, you have to have quite a different insurance policy to in a suburban house. So we now the way that we interrogate choosing insurance policies is entirely different to what it was prior to this experience. So it's really important to have this information up your sleeve, to get prepared and uh, knowledgeable about what it means to have an insurance policy, what the uh, policy provides you with and how to manage your risk overall. So in part three of our conversation, David's actually going to help us understand some specifics about your insurance policy so that you can understand what you're entitled to and what to do about getting imp- independent information to actually check that what you're being offered is fair. So insurance companies will tell you to do certain things. It's really important that you know also how to best operate in those um, scenarios so that you can navigate it confidently. And so we're also going to discuss to the steps that you take straight after dealing with damage and loss, you know, those immediate kind of moments after and days after, because you're required obviously to notify your insurer as soon as possible. But you also want to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row as well, so that you're in the best position as possible to, to make an appropriate claim. So let's dive into the interview with David now. I'm really fascinated with the whole kind of, um, you mentioned, you know, getting somebody independent to kind of give you costing information. The panel, so obviously you lose your house completely in a fire The and you get an assessment. Do they just look and go, okay, well, you had a four bedroom, two bathroom house that was weatherboard with a tin roof. We know that we can rebuild that for X. How do they take into account the size of it, how it was particularly designed if you don't have floor plans for it? You know, in terms of that, the panel builder and what they say it might cost to build and then you're getting an independent builder to come in and and compare that price. How does that happen in a total loss scenario? And then also how that might happen in a not total loss scenario? Sure. Well, I think highlighting one of the biggest um, again, unfair aspects of the way claims are dealt with right now is that insurance companies generally, generalisation, but they won't give you their quote costings. So if their builder comes and does a quote, says I can do this for 300000 many insurance companies will not give you that full quote that includes line by line, itemised costings, square meterage or linear metres, rates per linear metre, because they say that that's commercial inconfidence. Now, if you have your own builder come out though and do the same thing, they'll say, no, 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 we need all the line items so that we can compare the two. Uh, and in principle, that's fair enough. It's a fair request. But it's also fair for you to ask the same thing, to say, well, we also want the line-by-line costing so we can compare the two. But there's a mindset from the insurance company, well, no, we are the ones that are going to assess the loss. And as the consumer, you're just going to do uh, receive what you're told. And one of the areas we fight regularly is to actually get access to the fully itemised line-by-line quote costings. Because without that, you actually can't really answer the question as to whether or not the settlement is fair and reasonable. 
Now, the reason I raise that is because many insurance companies, or let's say I've seen many examples of uh, insurance companies where their builder will quote a certain figure if they're going to do the works, if they're expected to do the works, but as soon as you ask for a cash settlement, they'll give you what they call a liability quote, which is a very different figure. So, for example, if my builder's going to do the works, they're going to charge us 160, but you want cash settlement, okay, well, our, our liability quote's 120. Now, that that is something that they can do, providing that you don't get to see their repairer's costings, because you don't really know as a consumer, well, 120, that must be what the insurance repairer was willing to do it for. And so, uh, I think it's... Uh, the the consumer is at a massive disadvantage from the start in the sense that there's not full disclosure. Uh, And what makes that particularly galling to me is that every policy will have a massive section called non-disclosure or disclosure. So it's your responsibility to tell the insurance company anything that they deem fit that they think they should know. And they, they can retrospectively decide after a claim that you didn't give them something that they feel they should have known and therefore they can deny the claim or avoid the policy. It's, it's an issue that the commissioner raised at the Royal Commission and he, he has recommended that that should be changed. This is one of the, the biggest changes I think would be amazing uh, to change it from disclosure being a one-sided thing to the insurance company having a requirement to ask whatever questions they want answers to. So you only then have a duty to not misinform rather than a duty to disclose everything. So that would mean if you lie to them, rightfully you should be, have consequences for that. But if they don't ask you a question, you shouldn't, As again, as the, as the uneducated party in insurance matters, you shouldn't be held responsible for them deciding that they should have known something, that you should have told them something that you had no idea about. Um, so anyway, with, with the, the question itself on rebuilding, so this becomes an issue because you get your own builder, and, and I'll take a hypothetical example, who comes out, uh, say there's cyclone damage or there's, there's storm damage to your home, and they say, well, there's 80 grand to repair it. The insurance company says, well, our builder can do it for 50. Now, they won't give you the, the costings, they won't give you the quote. They'll say, well, okay, if you want the cash settlement, we'll give you 50. So you then either are forced to use the insurance company builder, and that builder can come in and, and underquote, and then have variations all the way through the job and end up charging $80,000 by the end of it, but you've lost the right to use your builder because they would only settle you on 50. Um, And so in many of our claims from Townsville floods, from Cyclone Debbie, we would say to people, do not sign a scope of works or agree to a scope of works until you know it's correct. And this caused major... uh, uh, pushback from the industry and, and from the insurance council, who who uh, many people think are there to police the industry, but they're really a they're a PR uh, um, spokes uh, spokesperson or spokes um, or, uh, spokesman organisation for the industry themselves. Uh, and and what I've found is you too often just get spin from them as far as spinning things in the insurance company's favour. Um, so what they would say to people is, oh, just just sign the scope. That's just a it's, a it's a living document. It can change throughout the course of the claim. Sign it and we'll work it out throughout the repair. Now, okay, they might work that out throughout the building process. But what if they don't? What if you come to them mid process and say, okay, well that thing that you said we'd sort out later, I want that added to the scope now. And they say, no, we don't think it's necessary. And then you try and challenge it. They say, well, you sign the scope. So you're really signing away all your rights on the basis of, oh, trust us, we'll sort it out. Now, if the industry had earned that trust over the last 30 years, maybe you could make that argument. But like, let's be serious. Have they really earned trust? There's a reason that the insurance industry is one of the least trusted industries in our nation. Um, so I say to people, no, 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 you get 
an independent view on anything that the insurance company does. If they get a builder's quote, you get your own builder's quote. If they send an engineer, you send your own engineer. If they send a building consultant or anything like that, get your own evidence, not because you're going to fight them necessarily, but so that you know independently that what they're saying is correct. Um, Because if you don't do that, then you you really are just beholden to whatever they tell you. And we've already established that they're acting in their interests. So if you're happy to to agree to act in the insurance company's interests throughout your claim, then good luck to you. Um, for me as a consumer, I'd rather get independent advice all the way through. When we had the storm damage and they sent in their engineer um, and we were having a conversation on site about the damage that had occurred and I knew the company that this guy was from and he was talking me through things and then the report that came back from him via the insurance company was entirely different. And um, and then we had our own forensic engineer who came through who was – and I sort of said to him, look, the, the structural engineer said this, this and this. And he said, yeah, I can see all of that. So it was very, very interesting to see. And it is that thing of, I suppose, uh, if you can try and keep a level head about the fact that they're not, they're not necessarily the enemy, but they're just – they have a different agenda to what you do, you know. And so – if you understand that that's the playing field that you're operating in? On that point, um, the other probably, uh, the, I would say even the biggest factor in this whole process that, that puts you um, uh, at, at a non-level playing field is the fact that all of the service providers, so builder, engineer, building consultant, loss adjuster, are all seen to be acting just for the insurance company. So the insurance company will instruct them, you don't get to see those instructions. They'll report to the insurance company, you don't get to see that report. And I can tell you firsthand, both from my time in in the industry and examples that I see now, uh, when, say, the engineer, we talk that as an example, the engineer might send a report to the insurance company, the assessor or the claims officer can actually go through that, because you haven't seen it yet, bear in mind, they can go through that and say, no, 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 we're going to deny this claim, we want you to change this to say this and change that wording because we're going to deny the claim or we're going to deny this aspect of it. And and I've seen examples as, as recently as last week where the insurance company company stupidly sent me all of that background email between them and, and their service provider saying, no, 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 we're not going to take take all the references out to that because we're not going to, you know, and so I've, I've actually got the evidence firsthand that it happens and, and I've seen it happen when I was in the industry. Um, my view is that any service provider should be, and, and this is really what should happen legally, they should be deemed to be acting for the insurance company and the insured. The instructions to that service provider should go to them and to you. The report should be emailed in the same step to the insurance company and to you. And if there was that level of disclosure from the insurance company, I think most of these little backroom deals and various other things would not happen and you would get a much fairer opportunity to have your claim resolved properly. Uh, I, I asked, I actually raised that issue at the Royal Commission and unfortunately they didn't take it on um, because I think it, it makes the whole process inherently unfair uh, because there all sorts of things can be done to those reports and quotes and whatnot before you ever have any chance of seeing them. Yeah, and I think, I mean, most of these professions have a code of ethics attached to them that you think would actually require them. Like me as a professional, I could never walk in to a situation and not kind of not act on it in some level of impartiality that just reports the facts of what I see because of my professional obligations. So it's quite quite interesting to see how it gets sort of tainted through that whole process. Oh, absolutely. And some of those service providers who won't act direct for the public because they say, well, no, we have we only act for the insurance company, 
um, if, if you say an engineer, if, if there's a, a damage that could be consistent with, say, the storm or it could be consistent with wear and tear, an honest report would say it could be consistent with either way. But they don't want it to be ambiguous because that would then be deemed in the insured's favour. So they come out and say, no, nah, this was like this beforehand. How in the world would they know that? That's complete and utter conjecture. But so many of these expert reports, so-called expert reports, are just that. They're conjecture. And because someone has a qualification, everybody's expected to, to assume that that's correct. Yeah, it's um, uh, like I said, you see this every day. I, I've just, I'm, I'm sitting on top of my frustration and, <laughs> and anger about it. <laughs> trying to make sure I get all my questions in. So now um, I wanted, you touched on it briefly. I just wanted to go over a couple more things before we wrap up. So there was the whole like for like conversation. And I know before you and I jumped on to record, you talked about uh, one insurer uh, using a substitution for colour bond when colour bond was specified and then saying, well, colour bond's just a generic name, which we ju- lo- ju- laughed about the fact that colour bond brand would um, certainly like to dispute that. Absolutely. When right. is here like for like? What does that mean you can expect from an insurer? What you should be able to expect is exactly what you had before. Uh, no matter what that is, an appliance, uh, a material that's used, um, a style of construction. So essentially what it means is that they have an obligation to put you back into the exact position you were in before the event. Um, so technically, unless the, if they had a policy that allowed them to, they could find a secondhand carpet to put into your home if you had a secondhand carpet, but obviously that's not possible. So most policies will will say new for old. So the, the caveat to like for like is that you would get the new equivalent. Now, what that raises, though, is that there are many products that they don't have an exact same equivalent. So a dishwasher, for example, you might have a, I don't know, a Fisher & Paykel dishwasher. You're entitled to whatever the closest current model of Fisher & Paykel would be. Now, sometimes if, if that, uh, if that uh, um, particular model has been discontinued, uh, the insurance company might say, okay, there's another model that does the same thing that costs less. And you might say, but hang on, that was superseded with the next model up. And so you can have little arguments over exactly what it means in those cases. But what it means is exactly what you had before, you're entitled to that. And where that's not possible, most policies will use terms like as near as practicable. So if you, for example, have one broken floor tile and that that exact tile is not made anymore, they don't have to replace the whole room of floor tiles. They can get the nearest possible match. That becomes a major issue in many claims where people aren't willing to accept non-matching floor tiles or roof tiles. That was a big one in Barara. Um, and so um, it can be a negotiated uh, situation, but like for like means you're entitled to what you had before. So in the case of Calabon, that was uh, one that w- with a particular insurance company who again will remain nameless because um, they're always <laughs> threatening me with defamation, so let's keep names out of it. Um, but one major insurer who uh, I saw two examples personally and anecdotally heard of many others where there was, say, a Calabon product on the roof prior uh, and they then replaced that with a uh, with, with a much cheaper overseas ripoff of Calabot. You know, it's something that supposedly has the same adheres to the same standards. Um, now, if if the Scoper Works had said um, corrugated roof and you didn't have Calabon before, they don't have to use Calabon. But if you had Calabon before, or if the Scoper Works says the term Calabon, then my expectation is that they will actually comply with what they've said or what you had. Um, where it becomes an issue again is if you had a tile roof and you want to go to Calabont. And so in some cases, I'll just use the cheapest version of Zincaloom or whatever it might be. Um, so there, there are many cases where like for like is not a simple answer. 
Um, but in principle, uh, you, they cannot give you anything less than what you had before. So if there is nothing exactly the same, my default is they have to go to the next one up. Um, that can work for you or against you. Say in contents, for example, your $5,000 LCD TV can probably now be replaced for $900. you are actually not entitled to the five grand. You're entitled to a like-for-like replacement TV. So it's not always in your favour. Um, and, and often those things are negotiated. Gotcha. I just wanted to ask one more question before we wrap up. You know, you're told that the first thing you should do after one of these situations is call your insurer and get in touch with them. Um, how, how do you balance that with knowing that they may not give you the news that you want to hear and you want to have all your ducks in a row and like be prepared for what you might need to pull together, the information you might need to gather so that you present your best foot forward and then be able to navigate any kind of dispute process or make sure that you're going to get what you've paid for. How do you kind of, you know, suggest people navigate that kind of aftermath of the of the, the disaster situation or the, you know, the experience that they've yeah, been through? Yeah, good, really good question. Um, so I guess the first part of that is you always should notify an insurance company as soon as possible. Uh, there are some policies where if you don't notify them and if there is subsequent loss, for example, or subsequent uh, costs that you may not be covered for, they should always notify them. Um, I also want to preface this answer by say, by acknowledging that I've got an interest in this because I am a consumer advocate and, and this is what we do. But at the same time, we've got a lot of work on and I'm certainly not spruiking for work because uh, we, we, we don't, uh, you know, we, we're not out there looking for work, particularly in the bushfires, but we are also happy to help people. So I just want to preface it with that um, because what I want to say is that uh, in any other area of profession, uh, professionalism, you would engage an expert. Uh, if you want to build a house, you would engage either a builder, an architect, someone with the expertise that you require. If you want to work out your, you know, your bushfire attack level, you'll go and get a bushfire assessment by a consultant. My view is that when you lodge a claim, you should really consider having an expert in your corner, whether that's an advocate or whether that's a builder or someone who, in your case, you had the 80-year-old engineer. Fantastic. There's a lot of really good people in, in uh, uh, many different professions who uh, maybe are secretly uh, um, big fans of what we do and we talk behind the scenes because uh, the, the public <laughs> the public response is, I guess, we're considered the enemy in the industry because we do give people knowledge and, and we don't stick up for the insurance company's interests. But there are many people who, if you go to them, they will also stick up for your interests and they'll give you um, correct, unadulterated uh, advice without, without an agenda. I would say to everybody, if you have a claim, get expert advice either by engaging someone to actually navigate their claim with you or at least by call, calling or making contact with an expert in, in the area that you need that advice. Uh, and, and at every step of the way, ensure that your interests are protected. Um, insurance companies aren't necessarily out there to deny claims, or that's a misconception. But they are there to pay claims where they deem them to be to be fair and reasonable, uh, but it is ultimately in their interest to to reduce claims costs and claim numbers. And so if there are ways of, of viewing something uh, through a lens that benefits the insurance company, they will find that way. Um, just like as a homeowner, you should be viewing everything through a lens that benefits you, but within the terms of the policy. So I would say that, the, uh, yes, definitely proactively engage with your insurance company, proactively work with them, allow them all the different experts they want to send and all that sort of stuff. Um, but what, one thing that – one mistake that, in my view, many people make is let's say a builder's coming out to your property and the insurance company says, we need an engineer. 
the for, the consumer thinks, well, I don't want to have to pay for any of this, so I want the insurance company to pay for it. And so then they said, say to the insurance company, will you send an engineer? And what you've then done is you've then not only enabled the insurance company to choose who they're going to use, and you know fully well that that person will ultimately act in the interest of the, who's paying them. Um, so you've lost a lot of control in that process. But you've actually taken your step of, yourself a further step back because now you've got an expert report that's going to side with the insurance company. So now you've got to pay for your own engineer if you're going to challenge that uh, because without an equal level of evidence, you're not going to win that challenge. So I actually say to people, if you need an engineer, if you need an architect, if you need any specific expertise, really consider paying for that yourself and getting the independent person up front. Yes, it costs you a few grand up front. In most cases, you'll get that back uh, in, because as long as that person's uh, evidence or information is credible and is used ultimately in the claim, then you're entitled to to request the insurance company cover that. Because what it does is it changes the parameters. If you have an expert and the insurance company doesn't agree with your expert and they send someone else, at least you've got the evidence at first and you can show that the insurance company's actions really are unconscionable because they're just saying, well, we don't trust your engineer. Uh, and yet they expect you to trust their engineer. Do, do you know what I mean? So you can proactively take this situation to the insurance company on your terms. Now, it doesn't mean that you automatically fight everything they do, but just don't see um, getting the insurance company to pay something up front as a benefit. It's it's much more in your interests to pay for your own independent expertise so that you can then have that conversation with the insurance company having the evidence behind you. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest mistake because we, we often wade into these matters six or 12 months later. It's already fallen apart. Lives are falling apart. Marriages are breaking up, all that sort of thing because of the stress of this claim. And and we can usually get through and navigate that through and, and come to a resolution maybe six or 12 months after that. But if some of these steps were taken in the early stages, our life and our job would be much easier. And and more often, you wouldn't need an advocate like us anyway, because it wouldn't go to dispute. So um, always take the initiative. Uh, this is your claim. It's not their claim. They are providing a service for you. And uh, don't be demanding, but be proactive and set the expectations early on. Don't just sit back and do what you're told. And I say that particularly for maybe those in the older generations. I feel really um, a lot of our clients in the older generations have grown up in an era where you listen to someone in authority. So if someone in authority tells you something, you just take that on the chin and move on and and often get screwed over because of that. So uh, no matter you know what, what your circumstances, you are the customer here, and you have every right to have independent verification of every step of that claim. Yeah, that's brilliant advice, David. It's really about being an informed contender, isn't it? Just it is. absolutely. Yeah, just making sure that you are. I mean, I look now at um, you know the the months that we wasted, sort of in the initial time frame of managing our claim, because we did. We just trusted that process would roll out the way that it was supposed to, and it was the first time we tackled it, and it wasn't until we. St- got that sort of first offer and were like, you've got to be kidding me, that then the gears started to kind of swing into action. And uh, it was quite amazing then having being able to pull those resources in of help and support to navigate it. But yeah, it would have been um, it would have been far more I would have felt far more empowered if I'd done that from the outset. And I think this is the thing is when you've been through a trauma traumatic situation like that, whatever you can do to start to feel like you're in control of how things are playing out ahead of you um, just bolsters your your sense of self in that process as well because you're not gonna you're not gonna have normal life for some time. 
and I think that you know trying to trying to get that sense of control into your life in in these kind of scenarios and it's like we said they're not that insurance company's not the en- enemy they just have a very different agenda and so it's um absolutely yeah, yeah. So yeah. and and I think rec- recognize no. that too. It's not wrong that they're looking after their own interests. That's that's reality, and they're entitled to look after their own interests, just like you're entitled to look after yours. So I, I don't. I guess I don't want to demonize them for for having that perspective, but I think people need to recognize that perspective and maybe recognize that the ads you see on TV about will be here for you. Yeah, as long as it's as long as your interests and their interests are the same, your claim will run smoothly. Um, and if they've, uh, you know, but as soon as your interests and their interests are not the same, whose interests do you think they're in business for? Um, and I think if you recognise that, you can make informed choices uh, and, and you can prepare yourself even emotionally for the fact that, okay, if they give you a dodgy offer, if they say to you, um, this is a maintenance issue, don't hear that and get offended by it. They're not saying you don't maintain your house. They're saying this issue is an issue that relates to maintenance, not insurance. And so I think sometimes because we're reacting in the emotional aspect of what we're going through, we will hear things and respond emotionally. And and I guess that's that's one of the areas that having an advocate can really benefit you because I can have those conversations with the insurance company. It's not personal. We can be at complete loggerheads with a decision or, or with a course of action, and that's okay. They're doing their job. I'm doing my job, and we work it through. And if we can resolve it, great. If we can't, we go to the disputes channel. Um, it, it takes the emotion out of it, and, and it gets you, I guess, the feeling that someone's on your team um, because that's really – it's if you feel all alone – it's a pretty deep, dark place to to be potentially for a year or two, uh, and and it does ruin many lives. Yeah, and I think I mean, it's uh, like I mean, when we were going through ours, I was pregnant. I remember them saying that crack in the wall. It's 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 a maintenance issue, and you're going, this is a 1960s unrenovated house. We're doing the renovation on it, of course. <laughs> like it's got things like, and you do, That's you right. think, yeah. you're like, you do take it really personally, and and you're caught up in the process of the fact that you're living in a damaged house, you know. And we felt we had this ticking time bomb of a baby arriving at a particular time. We had this toddler, so yeah, I think that what solve my claim is doing is just a godsend in what can be a really treacherous field for people to navigate, particularly after such a traumatic situation. And uh, whether it is the fires, whether it's hailstorms, whether it's flood storm damage, I think to be able to have that trusted advocate in your you know, in your corner who knows the rules, knows the playing field and can argue um, on your behalf, you'll find that any fees that you pay for that will far be far outweighed by the benefit of the difference in the claim. I mean, we it took us 13 months and we got five times what we had argued for, what they had initially offered. This is it's big money and it's it's really um, makes such a pivotal difference in how your future plays out. So, absolutely. Well, well just to, to give you perspective, I mean, and we're a, we're a small business with just a handful of staff. We do this Australia wide, but just in the last three years, the the decisions that we've managed to overturn and and have resolved have resulted in in well over thirty million dollars now in additional settlements. You know, so you are talking big dollars. You're talking big, big turnarounds. And again, it's not about the money to me in the sense of I don't really care how many millions of dollars we turn around, but I care about this family who were going to be offered 50 grand, but now we've got them 250 because now they can do their house and get their life back. And and when you're talking those sorts of figures, and, and look, the, the biggest one we've had is is a turnaround from 700,000. This this was a complex, 700,000 up to 2.6 million. So, I mean, you, you're talking big 
um, big differences in what sometimes insurance companies want to pay and what they should be paying. So, yeah, in your case or in any consumer's case, it might be even a 10 grand claim. The principle can still be the same. If, if you feel aggrieved, if you feel like you haven't been heard, you haven't been treated fairly, uh, that sometimes it's those smaller claims that uh, cause people more emotional distress than the than the total loss half a million dollar claim in my experience. Um, so yeah, it's it's that principle, isn't it? And and having someone in your corner, and again, it doesn't have to be us. I'm not asking you to come in and engage us, um, but having someone in your corner is invaluable. David, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much. We're going to have more information about anybody who's now looking to purchase an insurance policy, what they should be looking for. But I want to thank you so much for the wealth of knowledge uh, that you so generously shared to help people deal with the aftermath of uh, a traumatic situation. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problems at all. It's, it's our pleasure. I really do hope that you found uh, my conversation with David and all of the information that he prov- has provided over these three episodes really, really helpful. Make sure that you check out the resources. Uh, there's links there and ways to connect with Solve My Claim. I've already had feedback that members of the UA community have been in touch with David and Solve My Claim and, and um, getting assistance with their insurance claims, which is just, it's just that's just brilliant um, because I know then you're on the right path to getting what you're entitled to. Um, even if you don't, you know, get in touch personally with Solve My Claim, make sure that you check out their Facebook pages, their website. They're really generous in the information that they share um, and especially on their social media. They've got tips and things to pay attention to, you know, things to, pay, to look at in your policy, all of those kinds of things. So I've included all of those links in the resources. Now, David's actually going to be back later in the season. He's got more insights about your, your home insurance Um, policy, particularly how you can assess your current policy to ensure that you're protected and how to best prepare. And, you know, of course, finding this out before you're in the situation of making a claim can be hugely helpful. So we go through some, you know, specific things to be aware of and what terminology will actually mean. And um, there's some extra helpful information in those upcoming episodes. Remember also to head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all that we're sharing in the rebuild and build better series. And just bookmark that page on the website so that you can keep checking back as it grows. It's going to grow as an online hub that's really for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or any kind of damage or loss experience, or who's wanting to build better and more resilient homes overall. Now, in the next episode, we're going to meet Jeff Dow, who's a bushfire consultant with Ember Bushfire Consulting. They're a team of qualified, accredited and experienced fire industry professionals. And Jeff, as co-founder, has had 23 years of experience as a professional in the fire services industry. Now, a bushfire consultant is a specific team member who is super helpful and a very important consultant to have on your team when you're renovating or building in a bushfire prone area. So you're going to be learning from Jeff more about what they do and how bushfire consultants can actually help and what to be aware of specifically for your property. I see a lot of homeowners who live in areas that have a bushfire overlay on their site really leaving the bushfire consultant process until quite late in their project um, and missing all the benefits and opportunities of having a bushfire consultant involved up front to actually inform the strategy and the direction that they take around their new build or renovation. So I think it'll be really helpful for you to hear from Jeff how they work and what they do and what some of the things that they work through actually mean and what that can mean for renovating or building in a bushfire prone area. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.